Welcome. I'm Laura Axtell, the host of PodClast, and today I'm excited to interview Dr. Ivy Bonk about the impact of trauma on social-emotional learning and the benefits of creating school systems to identify and address trauma. PodClast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading that can be delivered in person, virtually, and in a blended learning model with instructional software for students in kindergarten through 12th grade. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. This has been a year like no other, but it's important to remember that stress and anxiety were already major factors in schools long before COVID. So season six of PodClast has focused on all things social and emotional. Many districts have MTSS models that are designed to consider the whole child and the connection between academics, the social-emotional component, and behavior. In episode one, we talked with Dr. Desatel about the importance of helping teachers and parents understand emotional regulation and how that improves students' ability to learn. Today's episode will focus on the need to think more broadly about this intersection for children who experience trauma and how current systems may contribute to higher referrals to special education specifically. As a special educator, I often saw the need to address the emotional needs of students and to support them more holistically, but most teachers don't receive training to do so, and many schools don't have systems in place. This topic is even more relevant today. Our guest today is Dr. Ivy Bonk. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Bonk. Thank you. So I'm really interested in hearing a little bit about how you got into the work that you're doing. Well, I have actually been in some form of education for over two decades. But then if we fast forward to 2008, I found myself as a principal at a school And part of the role, my role there was to approve referrals for special needs testing. And so one day as a child was standing in front of me, the question dropped into my spirit. Am I looking at a true learning disability or am I looking at symptoms from childhood trauma? Now, I am a thriver of, a survivor of childhood trauma. So I'm sure that's why I was maybe picking part of that up. But anyway, that that question led me to look for answers, which ended me in a doctoral program only two weeks later. And I would spend the next several years, I say too many years, uh, researching the hypothesis or the correlation between the misdiagnosis of learning disabilities and childhood trauma. Didn't take long to find out that indeed there was a correlation. But not only was there a correlation, that it happens at increasing rates for children from disadvantaged communities. So at that point, understanding that and knowing the condition of our education system, even at that time, it became a matter of justice for me. So that experience kind of shifted the directory and the focus of my work. And so from that time to now, I have been working, uh, creating, designing solutions, trying to help create awareness and consciousness around this intersect and what we can do about it. Could you explain every child whole? What does that mean? Since we've been working, you know, over two decades ago, I'm hearing the same conversations, Laura, about, you know, the achievement gap. So, you know, things didn't seem to be changing. So where that came from was I'm thinking if if whole child is what we're talking about, because my core value is justice, if it's not every child whole, then and it's not whole child. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, right. So yeah, so it's it was a my effort to put that conversation, that topic at the front of the line, at the front of the narrative, right? We can't really talk about it. If we're not doing the things systemically to create congruency, 
and get rid of the fragmentation and all these things that perpetuate these things that we've been talking about for two and three decades, then we really can't say that we're doing whole child. Okay, so let's dig in a little deeper. So, you know, there's a lot more focus on social emotional learning now and its connection to education. So could you explain what is the interaction between trauma and social emotional learning and schools and education? The state that I live in, I'm on the core team for SEL in our state and working on creating those competencies. And I'm always, you know, pointing out or, or making sure we're not missing the trauma piece because I see trauma or the, the effects of trauma, those behaviors and emotions that show up as a result of not addressing trauma as we can say the antithesis of what we're hoping to achieve with social and emotional learning standards or competencies, right? So if we don't understand and address the trauma, so we don't, if we don't understand the origin, then we're not going to be able to determine the outcome. So I think we need to do a, a a serious and very hard look at how we create the crosswalks for educators between understanding trauma and, you know, the social and emotional competencies we're now trying to tell them they need to help children achieve. Because if you're still in that space, if you've not been able to heal from the trauma or, you know, have some of those things addressed, then you're not going to be successful with the SEL as students, you know, and that's just going to put more barriers and weight on the teachers more so than they already have. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. How important is it for teachers to know what trauma a a child may have experienced or or is it more important for them just to look at maybe the characteristics or the indicators that there has been trauma? Trauma impedes learning. It dysregulates the brain. So if you have a dysregulated brain, then you're not going to be very successful at learning, right? It's just, that's the research. And so obviously, yes, understanding the symptomology, but just like with anything else, you know, I tell folks, if you did nothing else, if you didn't have a course, you know, we created a course, there's other courses out there. If you never took a course on trauma-informed practices in the classroom, but you went in every day and you built relationship with your students, gave them that safe place in the classroom, you were that predictable, consistent, dependable adult in their life, then that's going to go far because that's part of the result of unaddressed trauma. It keeps you in this high alert. You're waiting for the next shoe to drop kind of thing. So doing those kind of things, relationship is the predecessor or the ground floor to everything. That brings me to two points. So first of all, you mentioned symptomology. So what does that look like? What does symptomology of trauma look like? Basically, you have fight, flight, freeze. So, I mean, within each of those categories, students could be acting out different ways. Their maladaptive emotion behaviors in those different categories, they could be aggressive. They could be not paying attention. They could be the daydreaming, all these different things. Again, because it's the whole idea of the misdiagnosis, we were seeing these things before and we were crediting them to the child has a learning disability when in actuality, they probably had trauma that had not been addressed because the research shows that poverty, especially if you're serving in a school with high poverty, high needs students, the chances of children in poverty having experienced some kind of trauma is extremely high. I mean, Dr. Perry calls poverty trauma with a little T. So, I mean, we already know that if you're coming from that situation, chances are likely that you've experienced something. So how do you know? How do you differentiate between a true learning disability and the impact of trauma? Well, You could say it's complicated and simple all at the same time. But like I just said, research says poverty is the number one indicator of trauma. And so if you have a child suspected of a learning disability and they live in a disadvantaged situation, 
then what I tell people is you'd say time out because there are things that are, we have uh, best practices. We have things from like Child Trauma Academy that have methodologies and best practices and resources and tools for determining some of these things. But we have to not be quick to make that referral. That was what I felt that urgency. I have to educate teachers. Teachers have to know because they, they're making these wrong referrals. And it didn't take long for me to find out that teachers only could do so much depending on the environment of the school that they were in, right? So uh, sometimes I felt like I was putting more pressure on the teacher, you know, and you have to have, you know, I said, talk about a book. I just finished a book called Grounded Learning. But, you know, the key to a lot of this, because the solutions are so school specific, if, if you will. So it's really going to be that courageous leader at the school level that steps up to support the teachers in this way. So they can, so we can say time out, right? And to look at this and, and go through the process of trying to determine, you know, also another thing is that it's cyclical, it's generational. One of the strategies I talk about in the book going forward, if we don't go and reach back into the family and create a multi-generational environment, I mean, we're never going to fix this problem anyway, because we have to interrupt it from that standpoint, from the family. We can't try to do something for the child in the school and send them back home to the same environment. We have to create uh, partnerships outside in the community, relationships that help bring the family along as well. Well, that raises so many issues. So let's unpack this a little bit. So would you say that the first place to intervene is when students start displaying behaviors or academics is impacted to the extent that they may be being referred for services? And your first thing is to say, time out, let's first identify or determine if trauma might be a factor before we move forward in classification to like special ed. Is that what would happen first? Right. A lot of times teachers just have so much on their plate. Sometimes it's hard to stop long enough to, to do some of this stuff. But I mean, as they say, nothing happens without a cause. You know what I mean? The child is not acting disruptive because, you know, everything's okay. And again, if, if they're coming from that impoverished environment, the chances are it's something traumatic or stressful that's going on in their little life. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. Reading Horizons, the creator of a phonics-based curriculum, combines professional learning, direct instruction materials, and technology tools to empower teachers to implement the principles of reading science in the classroom. Here's a short customer success story from Janet, a teacher who has implemented Reading Horizons in California. I've been using Reading Horizons for five years and the Elevate program for six months. I've found Elevate to be a tremendous help with my ESL students, native English speakers who never went to school, and learning disabled adults who, in spite of years in school, never learned to read at the fourth grade level. The program has been essential to learning phonics for my lowest students. The program is intuitive enough that a student who doesn't speak English and cannot read in any language has been able to make good growth over the past three months. That this student can enjoy, use, and learn reading while using Elevate is amazing. Visit ReadingHorizons.com to learn more. Let's say you've got a student acting out and is being referred for something like ADHD, and you've stopped to address whether or not there may be trauma, and you are presuming, based on the information you have, that there is trauma involved. 
How do you then proceed academically because if the child is unable to maintain focus and attention in the classroom, so you believe that there may be trauma, but how does that impact what happens in the classroom? As I mentioned earlier, trauma dysregulates the brain. So as you're doing, again, let me state it, you have to have the supportive reciprocal leadership at the school level going on. You want to be working, making some kind of connection or some resource in the school staff, making that connection and communication with the parent. But what you can do because the trauma dysregulates the brain, you're looking for strategies on how to then regulate the brain, right? Dr. Perry talks about the six R's. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Bruce Perry. He's the patriarch of childhood trauma research. And so he talks about the six R's. And so that's a repetition. So pattern, because when your brain is dysregulated, so you're out of sync. And so you need to do things that are helping build these patterns. So the six R's are repetitive, rhythmic, relationship. We talked about relationship, creating that safe place, respectful, and then relevant. So, I mean, if you're a teacher, you know about making um, curriculum and contextual and relevant. For example, if you were looking to create something rhythmic, what activities do you as the teacher initiate that are uh, rhythmic? You're engaging the child sensory. You're playing music in the classroom. You know, again, you're doing activities that are repetitive. Because a lot of what happens to uh, that creates this dysregulation is that when trauma happens, it shrinks the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum is the thing that connects the left and the right hemisphere, which impacts integration. And so if we don't have strong integration, so that's communication between the left and the right hemisphere, then you know, learning again is going to be in, impeded and interrupted. So doing these activities, these rhythmic activities, these in a movement, these kind of things are strengthening and building back that integration between the left and the right hemisphere. So what that might look like connecting routine and rhythm, for example, or predictability is that teachers would have a regular routine. So students could know exactly what their day is going to look like. So I come into the classroom in the morning, for example, my teacher's at the doorway with a big smile, welcoming me to class, just building that relationship. And then the students know what's going to happen. So first we're going to wake up with a song or we're going to do some stretching activities or mindfulness or something like that. And then we're going to go into first, we're going to do this, then we're going to go next so that kids can predict what's going to happen. Is that how it could potentially work? Yeah. Okay, great. Let's get back to this kid with potentially ADHD who's being referred. Right. So we identify that there may be trauma and the teacher is doing these things in the classroom. And you mentioned about a support team. So would that be like the person who's in charge of discipline, the school counselor, those kind of people, so that when a student is sent to the office, for example, for behavior or lack of focus or whatever, that there's some strategy in place to provide support without punishment, for example. Absolutely. And you can know. So all of those people, everybody is on the same page. This is a all hands on deck. So team members are absolutely the school leader. That could be the school uh, psychologist, the school counselor. You know, the bus driver, the lunch lady, whoever it is, you've created that reciprocal environment in the in the entire school because this is what we're doing. We're all about helping Johnny or Susie or whoever it is, you know, get where they're going. I wanted to ask you about this, too. So how much of this information is being shared with pre-service teachers at the higher ed level? So as teachers are preparing to go into the classroom, 
often, you know, there's a class called behavior management or something like that, which has not really over the years addressed this kind of research because it's relatively new. So is this information being shared at the undergraduate and graduate level, do you think? I think it's it's starting. I mean, that was actually now when I graduated, you know, my dissertation, that was one of my recommendations because I said they need to know before they get in the classroom. I do know some professors that are starting to think about this. I think a lot of this has this conversation. Trauma was introduced. We started talking about trauma, say 2015, 16, we started this conversation and we didn't really do our due diligence. It was almost another one of those things like one more thing kind of. And here comes social and emotional learning, like gangbusters. I mean, it had been around, but, you know, here we are, boom, 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 moving fast down the track. And all of a sudden, now here we are in a global pandemic, right? So the timing of all of this and so trying to implement and acclimate everybody to what needs to happen. What do they say? Build the plane while you're flying it or something. So I think we kind of, in a way, we find that's where we find ourselves. But I do think it's becoming... Again, out of necessity, I think it's becoming uh, more of a conversation. I've had conversations with the HBCU here stressing the need for, you know, this kind of thing to happen because I think it's foundational. So um, what's your thought on curriculum for social emotional learning? Is that something you feel like schools need to help inform teachers in the classroom and to provide the right kinds of support and understanding? I think the guidance is great. I mean, when we make something mandatory at this point, again, understanding the origin so you can determine the outcomes, because I think if we deal with those foundational issues, understanding the trauma, leveling the foundation, and being in relationship with our students, some of those things are going to be just a natural outcome of those SEL competencies, if you will. I mean, I remember when I started to pilot my course, it's called The Day Trauma Came to Class, and I started pilot, and one of the uh, participants said, well, it sounds like you're just telling us how to be decent human beings. So, but it was, it's kind of true if, I, if you look at it. So, but we're having to be very intentional, I guess, these days about being decent human beings. You know, and I know I'm saying all this and teachers have a lot on their plate. So, yeah. But part of it is instructional practices, right? Because, you know, there was a philosophy for many years and it still exists in some places that, you know, told uh, teachers that you didn't smile until Thanksgiving. Oh, man. You know, that you that you started the school year very focused on setting rules and discipline and structure. And that was literally a, a phrase. And it's still around in places where you don't smile until Thanksgiving. Well, that is going against everything that, you know, and as you've mentioned, builds relationship, right? Especially for somebody with trauma. And, and and guess what? And you and I are like adults and we go to the store. Somebody's trying to sell us something and they're being rude about it or just being not even respectful of our thoughts or wishes or are we even really interested in the product they're trying to sell us? Are we wanting to buy it? No. No, we don't want to. Why would we think the, the students are any different, right? So yeah. And and do you think that often teachers have had trauma, their own trauma, and that oh, they get? I, yes, I get that from feedback when I do the course. The course sometimes is almost therapy for the, the participants. They're like, I'm so glad that you pointed out this, this, and this. And then they'll go into sharing with me, you know, about something that happened, you know, in their past that they hadn't dealt with. So does that mean that trauma-informed instruction actually has to start with the adults? That would be the wise thing. I mean, I do know some universities that are actually doing that. I mean, even in the SEL work that we're doing, I mean, we're creating competencies and toolkits and resources around what we're calling adult SEL. 
and you've written a book called Grounded Learning. Is, tell me about that. What is Grounded Learning? Grounded Learning kind of goes to the example I gave about these, uh, having a sound and secure foundation to build on, right? But I do, the book is uh, broken up into three parts. The first part is, is called The Case for Redefining, because the tagline is Education's Recovery Plan. And so we're redefining education. The idea is that the first part is giving you the case for redefining how we continue to use these antiquated ways and, you know, don't smile until November. I don't know that I've ever heard that one. But even going back to where education started and who it was created for and what was going on when it was created. So I go and do some of that history and making the case. And, and then again, trauma. Now I'm coming through the lens in this book through the lens of trauma. So if you have a single child that is impacted in, uh, by trauma and you multiply that across millions of children, that has a weight on a system. Um, and the system wasn't necessarily optimal to begin with. So, but now we put this added weight on it of undergrad trauma from millions and millions of students. And then we send them out into the world. And we wonder, so I go just kind of go through that some of that trajectory and, and kind of track the continuum of that into the workplace, into society. Uh, then I give a proposal. Uh, the second part is the blueprint for redefining. So that's when I share the grounded learning strategies, the grounded learning framework. And just and then part three is just one chapter, but it talks about what we could expect, you know, the reward of redefining. So, I mean, that day when the child was standing in front of me, to me, they were having their story interrupted by this trauma. I had my story interrupted by trauma. I wrote a book before Grounded Learning called Lost, Finding My Way Back to a Place I've Never Been. It's my own journey, healing journey from childhood trauma. I was sexually abused by my uncle when I was young. You know, my story was interrupted. And now we continue to do that interruption, if you will, but on a systemic way. We perpetuate and exacerbate our practices, this unaddressed trauma. So what about that, the kid that was standing in front of you? So... Uh, when the trauma piece kind of became part of that process, do, do many students then not need to go into special education if we're addressing trauma? Does that actually lead to lower levels of referrals to special ed when we address trauma? Yes. No, absolutely. We're, we haven't done that work yet, but absolutely it would because the opposite shows the impact. I remember being, uh, Laura, I was... Um, at a congressional briefing, we were talking about trauma legislation, and one of the panelists was a psychologist from the Chicago Children's Hospital, and she talked about how their roles for children to be seen for mental health services had doubled in one year, right? And this was after she had told about all these horrible statistics like, you know, suicide being the sec uh, second leading cause of death, children, you know, 10 to 24 or something like this. Just horrific, you know. Then her next statement was, we do not have enough mental health workers to work our way out of this problem. Well, and then I thought to myself, well, probably that's, so that's not the problem. You know, to me, the problem is unaddressed trauma. And so the research supports this. I mean, obviously, if you don't address trauma or if you address it as something that it's not, you're just creating a more, that person is going to be more vulnerable, more susceptible to the next thing that comes down the pipe, right? So it's compounding, cumulative. So you absolutely, it would impact spec egg roles. It would impact mental health diagnosis. I think NAMI says that 50% plus of persons diagnosed with a mental health illness or issue is done by the time they're 14 years old. You have to ask yourself what's going on. I mean, that just doesn't sound, you know, doesn't sound right. And so I'm confident based on the research and my experience and observation that it is 
you know, this idea of unaddressed trauma and then how it's exacerbated on a systemic level. Because education is the predecessor system, right? We have we need to get it right here because this is the system that outflows into everything else. Is part of your proposal then that we really do need to look at changing the whole mission and goal of education to address not only academic needs, but just rethinking how we make every child whole. Absolutely. Or how we support every child whole. Exactly. You mentioned that you see this as justice work and, you know, there's a lots and lots of discussion about equity in education. How do you see work with trauma and what you mentioned as adverse childhood experiences and things like that connected to justice and equity? I believe that unaddressed trauma feeds inequity in education, and inequity in education will always feed injustice in society. Thank you, Dr. Bonk, for adding to this important conversation. Thank you. As we close, we want to give a final thank you to our sponsor, Reading Horizons, and to all of you for listening. Reading Horizons is currently hosting a free webinar series titled Getting to the Heart of Effective Reading Instruction with Social-Emotional Learning. The final session of this series is on Tuesday, March 23rd at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. To view recordings of prior sessions and to join the final webinar live, register at readinghorizons.com forward slash SEL. As always, if you want to help spread the word about podcast, you can share a link to your favorite episode on any social platform or review podcast on Apple Podcasts. Join us again for more on these important topics.